everybody, welcome to Valley Church. It is time to get into the Word. We are still in the book of Revelation and I'm so excited. But before we get into today's message, I just want to let you know up front, we're going to be taking communion uh, at the end of uh, our gathering. And uh, we just want you to make sure you know that so that you can prepare your heart uh, during the message and so that you might be able to grab some elements wherever you are. Um, if you're driving, you can just pull over and buy a grape juice and some crackers at a gas station. If you're at home, maybe you have something there so you can celebrate with your family. Um, I will tell you this, uh, I, I hate running. I don't know if you love running. Some people love running, but not all, not even all runners love running. I know so many people who, who run, they run miles upon miles. There's like, I hate running, but I just keep doing it. Uh, you know, uh, there's uh, this resource out there called Runner's World. They went through all of the stats to kind of figure out what is the best age not to run, but to win a marathon. And after looking at all of the details that they had access to, they found out that the uh, uh, best age to win a marathon was 28 years old. Like maybe, uh, you know, a little younger, a, a little older, depending on what decades you're looking at, but 28 years old. And every once in a while, you kind of find an outlier, some 21-year-old who just crushes it or, or somebody who's a little older than 28 who wins this marathon. But what I know and what professionals know is nobody expects a 61-year-old to win a marathon, right? I mean, you're with me, right? Well, let me introduce to you Cliff Young. This guy in 1983, 61-year-old Australian potato farming shepherd, like that's really who he is. And he heard that they were running this ultra marathon called the Westfield Sydney to, to Melbourne Ultra Marathon. Uh, an ultra marathon, it's like this crazy endurance course. And this one was from Sydney, Australia to Melbourne, Australia, measuring 543.7 miles. And for those of you who aren't using the imperial system, uh, that's 875 kilometers. Uh, runners train their entire lives for something like this. You know, a typical ultra marathon participant would run like 18 straight hours and then they would just crash for six hours, get back up the next morning and do it all over again. Uh, I, they would eat while they're running. I don't even want to think about how they went to the bathroom. Like, how do you have time to do anything when you just need to hit the finish line on such a long race? And in fact, it's such a long race that the uh, typical runner would average, uh, like a good runner, seven plus days to finish this entire race. Running for 18 hours, sleeping for six. Uh, and Cliff, he heard that this was coming. In 1983, he heard it was coming, and so he started training. And, and training wasn't too difficult in his mind because he was just running around in the fields with his sheep. Like, it was something that he normally did. Like, three days at a time, he would run with his sheep. They would be out in pasture, and he would keep collecting them. He'd run around them and bring them together to make sure they didn't get lost. It's just what he did. And he's like, if I've done it for three days, seven days should be uh, maybe a little difficult, but something that I could definitely do. And this potato farming shepherd, as he uh, registered and started running, he was on nobody's radar. He was this nobody. He was not training his whole life. He was just a shepherd. And as he started running, he found himself in the lead before too long. In fact, the first night, the very first night, uh, he asked uh, one of his teammates, to set an alarm so that he could wake up six hours later. But the guy set the alarm incorrectly. And Cliff got two hours of sleep. 
And he was like, well, I'm awake. I'm going to keep running. So he gets up and he just starts running. And while everybody is sprinting for eight hours, this dude, look at him. He's really just kind of shuffling along. Both feet aren't even off the ground all the time. He's just shuffling along at a steady pace and he's just sleeping a little less and he's running a little more, but he's in cycles, in cycles of sleep and running and keeping a pace that nobody else really understood. In fact, they wanted to stop the race. They're like, this guy is going to kill himself. He's going to injure himself. He's going to die of exhaustion. He doesn't know what he's doing. He is far too weak for this. But he found himself at the front of the pack, and not just the front of the pack, Cliff won the entire ultra marathon. It was mind-blowing, not because the 61-year-old won an ultra marathon, but because at 61 years old, he crushed the ultra marathon record by two days because he just ran it differently. He endured through the hard pace of running. He didn't do things the way everybody else was doing it. And he found himself at the front of the pack. He, he's sort of like a model of a guy who was weak, but he was winning. In fact, Cliff finished the race in five days, 15 hours, and four minutes. And uh, after they did all of the stats and understood what, what, uh, what he did, they found that he only slept for like 12 hours total. I absolutely love that. The, the media comes up to interview Cliff and they said, Cliff, how did you do it? And he's just very unassuming and says, well, you know, I... Uh, I just imagined I was out in the field with my sheep, protecting them from a storm that's coming. That's so beautiful. It's, so, it's such, such a cool picture that this guy was just thinking, I'm shepherding my sheep. Cliff was pretending a storm was coming while doing his normal job, but instead of tending his sheep, he's just keeping pace. He's enduring. He's going through. You know, we're going to look at a church today that seems to be in, in, in kind of a similar situation. The church in Philadelphia is absolutely a weak but winning church. Jesus says to them in a letter, he says, you're weak, but you're winning because you have been faithful and you've been shuffling along. You know, there's, there's no talk about a storm coming, but in this passage, Jesus says, I am coming. I'm coming soon. And because of your faithfulness, I'm placing before you an opportunity to add sheep to your fold. So, we all want to win in life, right? We, we all want to, to do and win at, at what matters most in life. And, and here it is. So if you have your Revelation journal, could you just open it up to chapter 3 or your Bible or click over to the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, and we just want to take some notes because there is some rich information for those of us who are following Jesus in the text today. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And I just want to say Pastor Quentin has done a fantastic job taking us through these first five churches. There is so much in these letters. And each and every one of these letters, there just seems to be great concern or great pressure. You know, Jesus is just coming and talking to the church. And here in chapter 7, verse 3, we are in a study looking at a church that is finally receiving some accolades, some encouragement. Every church that we've talked about so far, except the church in Smyrna, has received some sort of rebuke. But not this church. This church, the church in Philadelphia, uh, is not only not receiving a rebuke, but this church stands out as a healthy, people-reaching church. And, and this letter is filled with, with hope, it's filled with praise, it's filled with encouragement, uh, and there are no words 
in, in this letter of disapproval or correction uh, or criticism. So let's look at uh, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, and then Jesus introduces himself. Thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. The key to uh, the city of David, this is uh, a phrase that's taken from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. And when, when you would flip over there, and you don't have to, I'll just explain to you that the, the context is that there is this royal steward, uh, a chief steward who would have this large master key, uh, and, and it would be placed or fastened to the shoulder of their tunic. And, and this key, it was a picture, and it actually demonstrated this person's authority, their, their power, this person's position. It was, a, it was a very high position to have. And this key, this key that comes, it comes with authority uh, to open and shut as the Lord's representative, which, which nobody can oppose. And so right here in the text, Jesus says he has the key. So we find that Jesus is holy, he is true, and he has the key. Let me just tell you a little bit about what each of these mean. Holy means to be set apart, to be separate. Jesus is not just another person in the crowd. Uh, he is true. Uh, nothing is more true than what Jesus says. Nothing is, no, you can't out-truth Jesus. Like you can't out-truth what we see in Scripture. And in any time we run into a contradiction, we can always default to what Jesus has said because nothing will be more true than what, what he has to say. And, and I like this, the key. Jesus has the key. It's not like there are a bunch of keys. It's not like he's one of the key holders. It's not keys. It's the key. There are no other keys of authority floating around. There's just one key and he has it, which means he has all the power. He has all of the authority. And this is something that resonates with us as we remember the great commission where Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus has the key. He is in complete control and he is completely faithful to his word. Look at Isaiah 40, 25. I love this. To whom will you compare me? Or, or who is my equal? Look at Isaiah 40, 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Asks the Holy One. Like he has no equal. He is, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He is holy and set apart. Look at what he says in verse eight. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power. Yet you've kept my word and you have not denied my name. I love this. I know your works. Like Jesus has said this a few times to the previous churches. And every time he has said this, you kind of feel this pressure or this heat. It's kind of like when I was a kid and I would hear my mom and dad yell like my full name, like, like middle name included. Like, Brandon Michael Hurley, I know your works. I would just hide like I was so scared. I knew it was going down, but not this time. Not this time. Jesus says, I know your works. And, and because of your works, I've actually placed an open door before you. Now, this word open door, it, it appeared in the last verse, and it's a little different. You know, Jesus has the key, and he is the only one who is able to open the door of salvation. And that door has not yet closed. Like, we are living in a time where we as followers of Jesus, the church, we get to go out and tell people that there's an opportunity to spend eternity in heaven with the living God. 
And here he says, I know your works. Look, I placed an open door that nobody can close because you have, look at this right here, you have but little power. They don't have the power to do it alone on their own. And, and he places this open door in front of them because they've been relying on him. And this idea of having little power, I love this because it, it doesn't mean that they're useless. It means that they've been relying on Jesus. This is a small church, so they have little power, but they also understand that they're limited in their power because they're just humans and they've been relying on Jesus. This church in Philadelphia, it's actually probably the youngest and smallest church of all the churches that uh, we've seen so far. And, and he doesn't say you have little power and that's a problem. He's, he's actually bringing it up because he's pleased with them. In other words, he's saying, you as a church, are you impressive? And the answer is no. But he says, have you been faithful? And the answer is yes, absolutely. They knew they didn't have the power and yet they were faithful to what Jesus had been calling them to. You don't, you don't have the key to open the door and, and, and you don't have the power to close the door. That's what he's saying. So I know your works. What, what are the works? Do you see them in there? This church has kept his word, which is incredibly important, and they have not denied his name. This church looked weak, but they were winning. In fact, if you're taking notes, uh, I would love it if you'd write this down. To be weak, but winning, you and I, we have to do the same. Uh, we need to obey God's word and follow Jesus daily. Like that's what the church here was doing. They, they every day were obeying his word. They were in the word. They were encouraged by the word. Obeying the word means reading scripture. Uh, you know, God's word was the standard that they were living by. They understood his truth and they, they lived out what they were learning. Scriptures were paramount to who they were. And then he says, you haven't denied my name. And this is so important because they weren't bashful about their Savior. Uh, it was the name of Jesus where they found authority. In fact, it was in the name of Jesus where they would find victory. It's, it's where we go to, to get our strength, right? It's, it's not about what you or I have done. It's all about what Christ is doing in and through us. But even before that, what Christ has done for us on the cross. Far too many people want the benefits of a relationship with Jesus without the sacrifice. And I would say it is very short-sighted to want all the rewards of following Jesus with, without the responsibility of actually following him. And this was a church that remained faithful. This church received the benefit of following Christ because they remained faithful. While other Jews were trying to make a name for themselves, this church was making the name of Jesus known. They, they weren't wavering. They, they stayed faithful. And because of that, Jesus opened a door of opportunity for ministry this, this is something they could never have done alone on their own. And then Jesus says this in, in verse 9. He says, note this. I, I love this. He's, he's getting ready to empower them and encourage them. It's, it's, it's like, hey, hey, pay attention. Note this. What I'm about to say is incredibly important. I know life has not been easy for you. You've been facing opposition. He's like, but listen, listen, I'm about to encourage you. And he says, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know 
that I have loved you. I love that. The synagogue of Satan. I mean, that's just such a, an eerie kind of phrase. And we've already heard it uh, in, in a previous letter. But I'll tell you this. Much of the opposition this church was experiencing was coming from within. The church had attenders who were just going through the motions. We might call them cultural Christians. You know, uh, we have cultural Christians in our church today, right? People who think that they're Christians simply because they're an American uh, or maybe they think they're a Christian because their uncle was a missionary. Uh, people who say, I'm, I'm a Christian because I'm not an atheist. People who are just coming to church, but they're really not following Jesus. That's who he's talking about. You know, maybe, maybe it's people who are just looking for the benefits of going to church without really the sacrifice that Jesus requires. And when I read this, this, this reminds me of one of the scariest verses in, in all of Scripture. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Did we drive demons out in your name? And, and we did many miracles in your name. And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Following Jesus isn't about going through the motions. It's about accepting the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. And in that experiencing transformation, Jesus is true. Jesus is holy. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And there is no fooling Jesus. You can't, you can't trick him into getting you into eternity. And by the way, you don't need to trick him because the gift of salvation is absolutely free. It's a free gift. When we let Jesus pay the debt that we owe because of the sin in our life, God freely gives us salvation because of what Jesus did, not keeping us out of heaven because of what we did. When Jesus is in the picture, when we give our life to Christ, what Jesus has done has paid for it all. The door's wide open. The door to eternity right now, it is guarded by the blood of Jesus, but it is wide open for anyone who lets Jesus pay for their sin. And scripture says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's an outward confession of an inward condition. Confession is letting the world know that you're a follower. Confession is not denying his name. It's going public with your faith. It's going public with the name of Jesus and making the name of Jesus known. And that inward condition, that means that you're not going through the motions that you're genuinely following Christ, that you received salvation because you believe in the resurrection. And, and at that point, you, you start a life of faithfully following Jesus. Jesus single-handedly defeated sin and death. It's the work that he did on the cross by dying in our place. That all you have to do is accept that gift and then start following him so that we can enjoy eternity with him. And as he, he writes to those faithful followers at the church in Philadelphia, he says this in verse 10. Because you've kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. You know, this endurance, this is a big deal. This is, this is paramount to all of 
why this church is having so much success. They, they, they didn't drop off. They didn't give up. They continued to endure. Jesus loves this church's obedience. This was so encouraging to Jesus. And you might want to just write this down in the margin of your Bible somewhere. Obedience is Jesus' love language. He loves it when his followers are obedient. He loves it when the church is, is following what he has commanded and what he has said, what he has taught and shown throughout scripture. This church was enduring life through uh, struggles and through persecution. You know, this, this was uh, a church that was seeing idol worship all around them. There were Jews claiming to be followers inside the church who just weren't following and none of this was easy. And Jesus knew that. And he was pleased with this church because of their perseverance. Because they followed his command to endure. You know, we live in a culture where this is like a hot topic. This idea of enduring, it's an incredibly hot topic. You know, we don't, we don't have to endure anything we don't want to endure, right? I mean, you know people like that. I might be speaking to people like that. I know I can be like that. And it's not just that, that we don't want to endure something. I mean, we can even falter into not wanting to experience any level of frustration. And when I do, I'm just going to escape. I'm going to go out the back door. I, I have escapes for all kinds of boredom. I have escapes for responsibility, for faithfulness, for obedience. And if that's you, I just want you to know you're living in a dangerous space. When things get hard or, or when we get frustrated or bored or, or things get, get tough or, or even a little uncomfortable, it's easy to find an escape hatch, right? One of those escape hatches lives in our pocket. It's my escape hatch. Uh, I've got so many notifications. I mean, like I could pause right now and spend an hour on my phone pretty easily. I'll tell you this, I don't hate phones though. I don't, I, I'm not anti-internet. In fact, I don't care if, uh, if you use your phone for work or for games or for community, but it is a problem if you default to your phone when you're bored or default to your phone when things get tough or when you're escaping something. You know, I looked at my phone earlier today. There's a, a little thing inside of it that tells you how, how much you've been on your phone. Um, and I looked and it said, I have averaged the past seven days six hours a day on my phone. I have six hours of screen time a day and that's an average. And then it had a little blurb underneath it and it said, hey, Brandon, good job. You're down 13% from last week. Are you kidding me? I was on the phone 13% more last week. The evidence is right here. Do you ever feel like you're just wasting time to escape from something? I mean, maybe it's just me. I know when I'm ready to escape, Jesus is right there. Sometimes he's whispering, sometimes it's loud and he's saying, I know things have been hard, but keep going. Hey, times are tough. Would you just endure? He says, you might want to quit. I want you to hang in there. He says, in this world, there will be troubles, but I've got your back, stay faithful. When you're wavering, Brandon, when you're wavering, be consistent. Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, because of your faithfulness and obedience in this area, I'm going to protect you from what's coming. And then we see in here, uh, because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. This is a, a major connection 
right now. You put, some, put a star there somewhere in your Bible. There's a major connection between keeping God's commands and our ability to persevere through trials. Keeping God's commands and running through hard things. We learn this in the book of James. Jesus' brother, he tells us that trials coming from the outside and temptations that, that live on the inside of us, the struggle is absolutely real. And God allows us to go through those things because that perseverance through the things, it develops us, it grows us, it, it matures us. And it helps us move towards honoring God in more things. You know, trials come at us from like every angle in life. And when you and I, when we live through those trials God's way, things always work out better. It's hard to say always, right? I mean, you're not supposed to say always. I'm saying it now, write it down. When you and I are going through trials, when we go through trials God's way, it always works out better. Being on God's path always works out better. I promise you that. If you're doing things God's way, there is no better path to be on. I can't think of a single time in my life when I've gone through something hard, when I've gone through a trial. It's a difficult situation. It's an impossible time. If I went through that moment the way God asks me to roll through that moment, when I look back, things are better now than they would have been if I did it on my own power, in my own strength. When I look back on those situations, if I went through them the way God asked me to go through them, if I went through them consistent with what I see Jesus telling me in Scripture, it is always better than what would have happened if I would have done it on my terms. Now, I didn't say it would be like the way I would have done it, right? Uh, I didn't say that if I go through things God's way, I get what I want. I said when you and I are walking through tough times God's way, things always work out better. This idea of this hour of testing to this church was, has, has already gone through a lot of tough things, a difficult season, and, and more difficult things are coming in the pathway of the life of this church. And what Jesus is promising here is that he will either somehow remove the church from these difficult situations, or he's going to see the church through these difficult situations. You know, the English text, it doesn't really grasp the fullness of the original language here uh, because it's, it's fair to say that I will keep you from the hour of testing, but it is also fair to say I'm going to keep you through it. So maybe he's going to remove the church from, from this tough time or maybe he's just going to really shield them, guide them, and guard them as they go through this. You own a rain jacket, right? I mean, I own a rain jacket. It is super dorky. It's like just the oddest color of blue. Uh, and, and it doesn't do anything well except protect me from the rain. You know, and when I put that raincoat on, if it is raining outside and I go outside, that jacket keeps me from the rain. It keeps me from getting wet or it keeps me dry as I go through the rain. In fact, we see some similar language in John chapter 17, verse 15. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. There is language here that is talking about spiritual guidance and spiritual protection. It's very, it's very powerful and very important. And then in Revelation 3, 11, he says, I am coming soon. He says, hold on. Hold on to what you have so that no one 
takes it from you. My, by the way, my job, my job isn't to tell you when coming soon is. Like I'm not here to predict times. I'm not here to predict dates. I'm just here to remind all of us to be faithful in the waiting. That's what you and I need to do is to continue like the church in Philadelphia to be faithful in the waiting. You know, people don't have the last say. God has the final word. He will have the final word. Not us, not you, not anybody you know, but God. No one knows the hour. No one knows the day. We just know he's coming soon. Check this out from Matthew 24, 36. Now concerning that day and the hour, nobody knows. Neither the angels of heaven nor Jesus, except for Father, the Father alone. Like God the Father is the only one who knows the time. He is going to call his church back when he's going to send Jesus in. And he says this, I love this in, in verse 11. He just says, hold on. Have you ever held on to something? Like you just don't want to lose it. Maybe, maybe it's a thing. Maybe it's your purse. Maybe it's your backpack. Maybe it's your life. Like you were hold I remember as a teenager, I was driving cross country with my mom. Like I think we were coming uh, back to Ohio from Pennsylvania and she was so tired. She's like, I just need you to drive. And uh, there was construction up ahead. And I'm just a, an ignorantly confident teenager and nothing bad happened. But I was driving the speed limit and the road was so narrow and these orange cones. And I just looked over and I just saw my mom. She like she was grabbing the armrest with such fierce force and her head was pushed back into the seat. Like today there are not just fingernail marks, but fingerprint marks like her fingerprints are so pressed in there. She, I was like, what are you doing? She's like, you're so close to the cones. I'm just like, I'm just driving. Like she was holding on to her life. Hold on. What he's saying there is stay faithful. Times are not going to get easier. Continue to endure. Jesus is saying, church, you've done well. Hold on and keep doing everything that you've been doing. Look at verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never go in and out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. I love this. Let me tell you this. This idea of, of the pillar inside of God's house that you're never going to go in and you're never going to come out, that there's going to be uh, some safety and some security. Uh, this, this church was in a place where they would experience earthquakes off and on all the time. And when your buildings are made not out of like brick and mortar that are sealed together, but are just rocks stacked on top of other rocks, you escape because those buildings fall apart. They fall down. And so the people would often run out of the city. Uh, at night, a lot of times, uh, many people would leave in, live in caves around the city. They would come into town to, to, to do life. They would escape the earthquakes, they would escape to have safety in their sleep. Jesus says, there's going to be a time when you're going to have some security. You're going to be a pillar in my house. And he says this, I will write on him. I think we're all getting tattoos. Is that what's happening right here? We're all going to get tattoos to the faithful. Look at this, to the conquerors. This is for those who remain faithful, who persevere to the end. He says to the conquerors, I'm going to write on him, the conqueror. What are you going to write on him? He's going to write the name of my God. He's also going to write the name 
of the city of my God and he is going to write my new name. These three things are going to be on every single faithful follower of Jesus Christ. When we meet up in eternity, there's going to be a line at the tattoo parlor. And, and I'm telling you, these things are so good. Let me tell you about these things. Uh, you might want to grab a, a pen off into the margin and, and say these things. Look at this. The reward for faithfully following Jesus. Here are those three things, maybe in our more common language. Adoption. We're, we're gonna, he's going to put the name of my God on us, like right square, maybe. And, you know, the Jews do this even today where they write the commandments. They keep them in a little box because Scripture says keep it written on your forehead. But literally, we're going to be branded. It's going to be like property of God. We're adopted. We're, we're property of. Uh, we're also going to be citizens. When he says, I'm going to write the city of my God on you, the new Jerusalem, like he's saying, you're going to be branded and you're going to be citizens, eternal citizens. And, and he says, and I'm going to write my name. Nobody knows my name but me. And when I come in and when I come back from my church, I'm going to write these things on you with my new name. We get to share in the victory that Christ has already won. Like his kingdom, we are co-heirs in his kingdom. You know, and what I love about this, I think this is, this is interesting. Can you just go back to that verse real quick? He's going to write on us. He's going to write on us. We're going we're gonna to take on these marks. And what I find interesting is Jesus took on marks for each and every one of us. At the cross, he took uh, marks on his back. Up on the cross, he, he took marks in his wrists and in his feet. And now here, he says to those who persevere to the end, I've got marks for you. But these aren't marks of pain. These are marks of belonging. These are marks of, of ownership and belonging to the family of God. I've just got a couple questions for you. I'm just going to close out with this. As we think of all of the great things that Jesus has said to this church, I just got a couple questions for you to help maybe stir a little bit of something inside of you. I think it would be great this week if you would just pause, even after you're done watching today, and ask Jesus, what are you asking me to do? Because Jesus was, was applauding this church for faithfully enduring. And my guess is that he's asking you to endure something. That there's an area of your life where you haven't been as faithful or you haven't been fully on your foot on the accelerator straightforward in something that Jesus is calling you to do. And I think it would be great for you to pause and ask yourself, Jesus, what are you asking me to do? Because I want to obey your command to endure through it. The second question, Jesus, what do you want me to change? Jesus says, I'm coming soon. He says, hold on, I'm coming soon. And maybe I would reword this by saying this. If you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you change today? But instead of changing it for a moment, what needs to change in our lives that we can point more people to Jesus? Because he's coming soon. A time is coming when there will be no more opportunity. But right now the church is here. And we have the, the freedom to share the good news of Jesus Christ with anyone who would give us ears to hear. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today, for the ministry that you do in our lives, for the ministry you allow us to have, 
Jesus, thank you for your applause every now and then, just letting us know when we're on track. Continue to grow us. Uh, help us follow you when times are tough and help us, help us clearly see you and follow you when things are good. Sometimes it's harder to follow you when life is good. So Lord, give us your favor, give us clarity and help us faithfully follow you as we obey your word and as we don't deny your name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to take communion. And I'll tell you this, if you are not a member of Valley Church, that's okay. You just need to be a member of the family of God. Uh, we are celebrating communion, which means we're celebrating the fact that Christ died for our sin. This, this moment uh, of celebrating communion is not only a celebration of what Christ has done for us, but it is anticipation that Jesus is one day coming back for his church. And on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And after he had given thanks, he ate it and he said, do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup, it represents a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it and whenever you eat in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. So wherever you are, uh, if you don't have elements, take a moment. Just thank Jesus for all that he has done. Celebrate in great anticipation for what we're waiting for him to do. Take whenever you're ready. Love you guys. Have a great week.